Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. My name's Adam. I'm an alcoholic. Like to uh, first thank the committee for asking me to come and speak. It's an honor and a privilege to be asked to participate in Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, ultimately, it's a responsibility to give back what was so freely given to me. I want to uh, welcome you guys that are new. Um, if you're trying AA one more time, if perhaps you don't think this will work for you, um, if you don't want to be here, I I didn't want to be in AA. I didn't aspire to this. Um, you know, I hated all you happy people. And, um, you know, I stood up as a newcomer for 17 years. It it became ridiculous. And, um, you know, I had so many key tags and chips. You know, I I mean, I I could have played poker with them. It was ridiculous. And, you know, I I mean, I don't mean to be funny, but I did that walk of shame over and over and over. And, you know, I mean, I know the old timers were judging me, you know. I mean, if you're new, we're, we're judging. You know, some of us make bets. I love it when they say, don't judge anybody. You ever hear that? Don't judge anybody in AA. You ever hear that? Five minutes later, they're telling you to stick with the winners. Right? You hear a lot of stuff like that that's not in the big book. Uh, Don't make any major decisions in your first year. Have you guys seen the third step? What's the other one I love? Uh, oh, don't get in a relationship in your first year. No one knows if that works. No one's ever done it. <laughs> but the one I love is God doesn't give us more than we could handle. And, you know, if that was true, I wouldn't need God's help. And the longer I've been in Alcoholics Anonymous, the longer I've been separated from alcohol, the more that I've come to terms with the fact that I absolutely do need God's help. And I... I Alcoholics Anonymous has done for me what I could never do for myself. It's done for a lot of us collectively what we could never do for ourselves. And, um, you know, as I always say, and I'll probably say it again, if I live to be 100 years old, I could never pay Alcoholics Anonymous back for that freedom that, that I have. And, you know, I always heard that gratitude was, you know, a feeling, you know, and I thought gratitude was a feeling. And, you know, my sponsor pointed out that gratitude for me wouldn't be a feeling. It would be an action. And it would be demonstrated through what I would be willing to give back to Alcoholics Anonymous as gratitude for, for my freedom. And, um, you know, it, it just became ridiculous. I, I, I was so filled with guilt and shame, you know, alcoholic ego about being a newcomer that, you know, eventually I started coming to meetings drunk. And I, I mean, the funny thing about AA these days is if you see a guy drunk in the rooms, people are like, what's he doing here? Right? With the, with the event. Event of treatment, which swoops a lot of us up in our most desperate moments. You don't see people drunk in the rooms of AA. But, you know, what I would do, we have these late night meetings in Los Angeles, you know, 10, 11 o'clock at night. I would, I would go to 7-Eleven, get a big gulp cup, you know, fill it up with liquor, put a little Coke on the top, and I would go to late night, you know, do some of my best sharing. <laughs> you know, and they didn't think it was funny. They weren't laughing. 
you know, and then eventually, and this isn't a plug for treatment, but uh, I started going through treatment centers. I heard the first speaker uh, talk about going to treatment. And, you know, by the time I finally got sober, I'd gone through treatment 28 times. And I remember, you know, like telling my sponsor I went through treatment 28 times. I was hoping that would get rid of the guy, you know, loser. And he said, you know, that doesn't make you an alcoholic. And I thought, you're kidding. He says, no, it means you paid half a million dollars for a big book. I didn't think that was funny. You know, and I'm not going to start citing pages tonight out of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. But page 101 of the big book <laughs> says any scheme that attempts to shield the alcoholic from temptation is doomed to failure. See, treatment was a great place to fatten me up for another run. But treatment never solved the problem. And I always thought the problem was alcohol. And a guy said to me, you know, Adam, if that little bottle of Jack Daniels, that little drink... If that's your problem, he says, you're probably not an alcoholic. And then in the very next breath, he said to me, if you are an alcoholic, the type that's described in the doctor's opinion in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, your problem is an alcohol. And it took me another decade to understand what he was trying to tell me because it was obvious from the time I was in junior high school that I couldn't live with alcohol drooling on my desk, pissing in my pants. Even from that age, everyone could see that I couldn't live successfully with alcohol. But as an alcoholic, the greater aspect of this disease is the very fact that I can't live without alcohol. And I have a mind that always takes me back to a drink. The alcoholic mind. I have a mind that will argue with anybody about anything at any time. You tell me it's black, I'll tell you it's white. Right? You tell me it's go, go right, I'll go left with an attitude. You know, denial for me is like, don't even notice that I am lying. <laughs> it's an acronym. You know, and I do it in every aspect of my life. I don't just do it with alcohol. I do it with relationships. I do it with chocolate cake. You know, I do it with credit cards. It's no wonder there's 412 step programs. They're all identical except for the first half of step one. You know, I go to meetings and people identify in AA as alcoholics. Then you got people identifying as addicts. Then you got addict alcoholics. Then you got alcoholic addicts that are somehow different, you know. <laughs> you know, like I'm dumb and stupid, right? <laughs> then you got the dope fiends in the back row that are worse than all of us. You know, and if we don't have a common problem, we don't have a common solution. And it took a long time for me to really understand what that common problem was. You know. And it becomes more and more apparent to me the longer I'm separated from alcohol. And there I was, you know, in one more treatment center. I was 120 pounds. I let everybody down one more time. You know, I was dying of alcoholism. I was dirty. I was hopeless. You know that great feeling in detox, you know, and I'm in the detox circle with my fellow associates, you know, a vision for you. <laughs> you know, and this woman from AA comes in and does her, you know, on her H&I panel and uh, she does her H&I talk and, you know, she's in her business suit, probably one of Clancy's crew. 
And at the end of her talk, she says, if I could give you all the gift of recovery, I wouldn't do it. And I looked at her and I looked at the guy next to me and I said, what a bitch. (laughs) And you know what she said? She said something that I'll never forget. She said, the reason I won't get, wouldn't give you the gift of recovery is because I wouldn't rob you of the journey. And all of these years later, I understand that that journey to surrender and that journey to recovery is personal. And I can't transmit that intangible gift of desperation to anybody if you're new. You know, I mean, by the way, if you are new, we're the only people that want a reward because we ran out of a burning building. Yeah, we're very happy you're here. <laughs> you know, and if you're sitting here thinking about drinking tonight, it beats the hell out of being in a bar right now thinking about being sober. You know, and I remember my sponsor told me, he said, he wanted, he said, buy a black suit when I got sober. And I said, why? And he said, well, you're going to go to a lot of funerals. And then he said, if you drink again, at least we'll have something nice to bury you in. And, you know, the funny thing is, if you baby the alcoholic, you will bury him. And I thank God that I heard the truth about this disease, that this was fatal, it was progressive, it was chronic. It was never going to go away. It wasn't going to get better. And that the shower I took yesterday wouldn't keep me clean today. You know, and I had to come to terms with that fact. It's almost like unplugging a refrigerator. If you unplug a refrigerator, you know what happens, right? Everything goes bad. And, you know, my experience shows me if I plug, unplug from Alcoholics Anonymous, I slowly spiritually deteriorate, no matter how much time I think I have. You know, a lot of people get a lot of years and not enough days around here. And, you know, it's one day at a time, and it's been that way for, for almost, you know, a little over 10 years for me. And, um, you know, I do a lot of H&I. I, I, I probably should, right? I'm an alumni from everywhere. So... I have this panel up at the VA, the Veterans Administration, and, you know, we take panels into, like, you know, detoxes and prisons and and, and hospitals. And, you know, you get into a room like this big full of soldiers and you start talking about surrender, you know what happens, right? (laughs) Room gets really quiet, especially Marines. But, you know, one of the greatest illustrations of surrender that I had ever heard came out of one of those experiences. And... If you ever watch a soldier surrender, the illustration's perfect. You'll see him take the rifle, lay it down on the ground, sit down on the side of the road, wait for someone to tell him what to do. You know, when you get 40 AK-47s pointed at your head, you don't throw down the gun with an attitude. (laughs) Right? You're not sitting on the side of the road looking back at the gun, because if you do, someone's going to shoot you. Am I looking back at alcohol? Am I looking back at the magic that I once found in alcohol? Because see, for me, like a lot of us, life had its moments. And for those very moments, I'm willing to give my life to recapture and recreate the magic that I once found in alcohol. And unless I can find that sense of comfort and ease that I sought from alcohol through this process, there's no way I'm going to stay here. It took a long time for me to understand. I mean, people say, don't drink no matter what. 
I'm like, why don't you join Nancy Reagan's merry band of winners and just say no? I drink no matter what. You know, and the first speaker was talking about that. I can't bring into my consciousness with sufficient force the pain and suffering of a week or a month ago. I have no effective mental defense against the first drink. Which is really just another way of saying I never took my first drink drunk. With why I think is a perfectly sound mind, it takes me back to alcohol. You know. And that journey to pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization that we talk about is personal. And thank God we don't shoot our wounded around here. This room would be empty. You know, and I thank God that the old timers continued to reach their hand out and say, just keep coming, just be quiet, have a cup of coffee. You know, and I just... Some of my dearest friends have died of alcoholism, and I, you know, you can't give it to somebody. I wish I could give that gift of surrender to you if you're new. And, um, you know, for me, there was a direct relationship between willingness and surrender. You know, you'll never see anybody more willing to work the program of Alcoholics Anonymous than the guy that comes crawling in the room after a long, hard run. He'll do anything, right? 90 meetings in 90 days. He'll take a commitment. First day out of detox, he wants to take the coffee pot home. Right? That's how we lose half our literature. And that same guy, 30, 60, 90 days later, is looking at me saying, you mean we got to go to meetings every day? And like a prize fighter that throws in the towel, what I would do is I would take that towel back one little piece at a time, over and over and over again. You know, and I came to understand for me, like a lot of us, that there's a huge difference between the act of surrender that gets the newcomer into the room of Alcoholics Anonymous over and over and over again, and the state of surrender that's keeping the old timers here. It's a completely different concept. It's kind of like watching a swan glide across a pond of still water. It looks so graceful. It's so effortless. It's so beautiful. But you know what's going on under the water, right? He's paddling like hell. And if you're new, we have a chapter in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, Into Action. We don't have a chapter into feelings. You know, there's no chapter into thinking. We ought to have a chapter into whining from the podium. And what happened to me, like a lot of us, is I became willing to set aside everything that I thought I knew about AA, about God, about the 12 steps, so I could truly have a new experience with this. You know? And that was very difficult for me to really understand my experience, you know, and everything that I thought I knew was really a wedge between me and freedom. And I had to be willing to set aside all of those old ideas. And as an alcoholic, there was a huge difference between compliance and surrender. There's a guy by the name of Dr. Harry Tebow who's one of the contributing members to some of our original literature. And you can look him up on the Internet. And he talks about the difference between compliance versus surrender. And I'd been in compliance with Alcoholics Anonymous for years doing it for sober living, doing it for the judicial system, doing it for the parole department, doing it for family services. I mean, where I live, they do it for the trust fund. 
you know, but that act of surrender that we talk about, very much like that soldier that lays down that rifle, is unconditional. And as an alcoholic, see, fear won't keep me sober. Getting a third strike, living on the street, being homeless, losing my career, throwing away my education. Did scared straight work for you guys? That went right over my head. Now, the big book talks about the problem drinker, right? Completely different character. Problem drinker is someone that can stop or moderate given sufficient reason. Huge difference between a problem drinker and a real alcoholic. You get a problem drinker and a real alcoholic in a drunk tank for, say, drunk driving, you got two completely different philosophies going on. You got the problem drinker on one side of the cell thinking, why did I drink so much last night? I knew I shouldn't have drank so much. Real alcoholics on the other side of the cell thinking, why did I take the 12? You know, the court card people never laugh at that. (laughs) Things might have been different. And that's the compliance line that we see, you know, at a lot of meetings. You know, and I had a court card for five years. I had a court card. And, um... You know, I wasn't ready until I was ready. You know, and no one could give me, you know, that gift of surrender. You know, if I really look at it, problem drinker's wife says, you know, if you don't stop drinking, I'm leaving you. Problem drinker cleans up his act, right? Doesn't drink in the house. Gets a little visine. Now, if my woman says to me, honey, if you don't stop drinking, I'm leaving you. You know what I'm thinking, right? I'm thinking about single life. Now, just looking back at my relationship to alcohol, if anything got in the way of booze, it was out of my life. Relationship, career, education, all of it. Alcohol is very selfish. And eventually for me, if anything got in the way of alcohol, it was out of my life. And if you're new, my experience with Alcoholics Anonymous is that if anything gets in the way of Alcoholics Anonymous, if anything gets in the way of my recovery, it's out of my life. You know, a woman, I don't care how beautiful she is, how much she loves me, how good she makes me look. I remember the first time I said that from the podium, there she was in the back of the room. (laughs) She's like, sweetie, you don't look like an alcoholic. Why do you got to go to all those meetings? You're not speaking again, are you? Your recovery is getting in the way of our relationship. A couple months later, we're having Thanksgiving dinner. You know, I'm at the head of the table all dressed up. And um, I'm with her family. Out comes the, the exotic wine. And she's like, sweetie, you can have a glass of wine. It's just one glass of wine. Four more rehabs. I know, I stole her purse that night. (laughs) Went and bought an outside issue. (laughs) And she came to detox with a get well card. 
And I did it to her like three, four more times. For her, a slip was five minutes of compassion. I would say, you guys know the difference between a, a toilet seat and a codependent? The toilet seat doesn't follow you around after you poop all over it. <laughs> Told you, shouldn't have brought her to this meeting. You won't be able to pull that out of her anymore. You know, and if anything got in the way of my recovery, you know, it was out of my life. I have sponsees that pay more in taxes than I make all year. They have these huge careers and these little tiny AA programs. And you know what? I've never seen one of them stand the test of time here. What do I do for a living? I stay sober. What do I do for money? It's over there. And if I get them mixed up, I'm in handcuffs. If I get them mixed up, I'm, I'm, I'm handcuffed to a gurney. I'm in an emergency room. I'm back in detox. That may not be your experience. That's my experience. That any time I put anything in front of Alcoholics Anonymous, it's taken away from me. Self-knowledge won't fix me. I mean, I've had every relapse prevention class known to man. And I can't make it past the liquor store. You know, and I'm in, I'm in relapse prevention class, you know, again. We're talking about triggers. I tell my, my, my instructor, waking up's a trigger for me. <laughs> I'm up. I was asked to leave the class. <laughs> and there I am one more time behind a dumpster on Skid Row, drooling on myself, reciting chapter five out of the big book. And the bum next to me is like, will you shut up, man? You're ruining my high. And I'm crying because I can't get back here. And I've got a head full of Alcoholics Anonymous, and i got a belly full of booze, and I'm separate, different, and alone one more time. And if you think that sounds bad, you know what's worse than that? Being in this room tonight and really being an alcoholic and not working the 12 steps. That could be worse. Coming to meetings late, leaving early, not having commitments, not being of service. That could be a worse death. You know, I always, you know, I, that's why I always try to address the person in their last 30 days. You know, we never recognize the guy in his, his last 30 days. You know. And you can always spot him, ask him how they're doing. I'm fine. I'm, <laughs> I'm like, why don't you tell your face that? You know, and it's tragic because we always hear about it later. You know, so-and-so blew his brains out or committed suicide or drank again. You know? See, the knowledge was necessary, but it was insufficient to keep me sober. The knowledge about recovery was something that helped me to win the confidence of a newcomer where no one else could, where the clergy couldn't do it, where the therapist couldn't do it, where the drug and alcohol counselor couldn't do it, where the parole department couldn't do it. Another drunk was able to win my confidence because he lived like I did. He felt like me. Not just in active drinking, but more importantly, in untreated alcoholism. 
And he was able to share his experience, strength, and hope with me in the insanity that precedes the first drink, in the delusion that I live in, in the resentment that drives me crazy, in the selfishness. And thank God that we have a common solution. You know, you hear it at every meeting. We, where, where I go to meetings, they, they say, keep coming back. It works if you work it. Have you ever noticed they don't say, keep coming back. It works if you know it. I mean, I told my sponsor I had a degree when I came to AA. And you know what he said? He said, thermometers have degrees. You know where they stick those? <laughs> Vicious. Oh, just play the tape through. That's another one I love. Just think it through. I mean, I'm driving my brand new car down the freeway past Skid Row. You know, I live in a big city and I, I think about Skid Row and you know what my head tells me? Skid Row wasn't that bad. Just give me a toothless honey and a cardboard box. I can make it on Skid Row. Where I live, it's warm. And that's insanity. You know, I always thought insanity was doing the same thing and expecting different results. Isn't that what most most people say in AA? That's not the insanity I deal with. I have another type of insanity. It's doing the same thing, knowing exactly what's going to happen, and doing it anyway. At least the other kind of insanity, doing the same thing and expecting different results, at least there's some hope there. <laughs> Insanity. Like we were saying, it's, you know, I don't want to offend any of the tender ears tonight, but it's, it's kind of like having sex with a gorilla. Now, you know, if you have sex with a gorilla, honey, it ain't over till the gorilla says it's over. <laughs> you get the gorilla back in the cage, you know what happens, right? Starts looking at you again with those loving eyes. Remember how it used to be? It's like a sadistic lover. I promise I won't hurt you this time. Just let me out for a second. What's the other one? No one's going to know. I mean, that's the way the disease talks to me. I don't know how, you know, it talks to you, but, you know, this is, goes on and on. It's like my sponsor was talking about people that, you know, are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves, and I'm looking around, and he said, what are you looking at? They're talking about you. <laughs> that I have this peculiar mental twist, this obscure way of looking before I, I take that first drink. I mean, I will tell myself it's okay, and then I'll step around the podium and believe it. And I have to stay aware of that truth. You know, and I have to be very clear on that. And thinking it through won't work for me. You know, it reminds me of this story of a, a guy was, you know, we were talking about hunting today. And, um, you know, this guy gets a rifle for his birthday. And it's his lifelong ambition to, uh, to shoot a polar bear. So he, you know, he flies up to Alaska and, uh, you know, he, he sees a bear. And, you know, he's got his new rifle, so he, he shoots the bear, and he goes over to check out his kill. There's a tap on his shoulder. It's a bigger polar bear looking down at him. 
says, you know what? You just shot my son. You got two choices. You either let me have my way with you or I'm going to maul you to death. A couple weeks later, he's healing up in the hospital. <laughs> now he's got a resentment. So, you know, he gets a little better. He flies back up to Alaska. He's going to get the bear, right? He's healed up. Uh, goes to the same spot. He sees the bear. Takes his shot. Goes over to check out his kill. Tap on his shoulder. Bigger polar bear looking down at him. You just shot my uncle. You got two choices. Either let me have my way with you or I'm going to maul you to death. Back in the hospital. Healing up again. You know, now this goes on back and forth, back and forth for years. Finally, he's, you know, he's up there again. He sees the bear. You know, he takes his shot, goes over to check out his kill, tap on his shoulder. It's the king of the polar bears looking down at him. The king of the polar bears says, you know, we've been watching you. You're not really up here for the hunting, are you? You know, and that's the kind of insanity that I deal with with alcohol. And we talk about driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-delusion, self-pity. It's almost like driving cattle. You know, when you're driving cattle, you have, you know, horsemen on the four corners of the herd. And it's like, you know, when you're in the middle of that, that herd, you don't know you're being driven into the slaughterhouse. Driven by resentment, by selfishness by self-pity, by delusion, you know, and I just couldn't see that. I couldn't see the truth about that. And, you know, the longest bridge that I ever crossed, the longest journey that I ever walked was that little tiny hyphen between the first and second half of step one. And really understanding what unmanageability is. You know, because we hear it in chapter 5. Every time you read chapter 5, you hear it. Our personal adventures before and after make clear three pertinent ideas, right? A, that I'm an alcoholic and I can't manage my life. B, that no human power, not even Clancy, can relieve my alcoholism. <laughs> and C, that God couldn't would have sought. And I'm thinking before and after what? What are they talking about? And for me, it's before and after I put down a drink. See, the problem drinker comes into AA and thinks unmanageability is based on drinking. If that's true, stop drinking. But my experience shows me when I'm not drinking, I have a whole other set of problems. And there's guys I drank with that have the same phenomenon of craving that the doctor's opinion talks about. And as soon as they put down the drink, something magic happens. They fit in again. The career welcomes them back. They come to meetings once a year, never work a step, and their life gets consistently better. They've been serene since their ass hit the seat in AA. That's not my experience. My experience every time I stop drinking, the first thing they say to me is, boy, you need to be on medication. Why are you so angry? Why are you so emotional? What's wrong with you back there? You know, and I'm crying at dog food commercials. <laughs> when I'm not drinking, I have a whole other set of problems. They're outlined on page 52 of the big book. 
When I'm not drinking, I'm a prey to misery and depression. When I'm not drinking, I can't control my emotional nature. When I'm not drinking, I'm full of fear. When I'm not drinking, I can't manage my personal relationships. Sound familiar? When I'm not drinking, I'm basically unhappy. When I'm not drinking, I'm no use to other people. And the way that plays out for me in untreated alcoholism is I don't fit in, I'm not part of, you don't understand me, everybody's in my way, life's not fair, they're not treating me right, I'm underappreciated, they're not paying me enough, she's cheating on me, I gotta drink! And something magic happens. I pick up a cocktail, and I intuitively know how to handle situations that used to baffle me. Right? Give me a couple more drinks. Fear of people and economic insecurity leave me. I'm buying the whole bar drinks. <laughs> Hell, I'll write you a check. <laughs> Not only am I getting better looking, honey, you're getting better looking. <laughs> you give me a couple Vicodin, I could comprehend the word serenity, and I know peace. <laughs> give me a little cocaine, I want to start a business with you. Give me down to my last 20 bucks. I'll show you how my experience will benefit others. Now, you know what? If you're laughing at any of that, there's something really wrong with you. Because that effect does not occur in the normal or temperate drinker. Alcohol is supposed to be a depressant. That's why normies have two drinks and they go, I've had enough. I'm, I'm, I'm feeling it. You know. And for me, alcohol creates that sense of comfort and ease. It makes my life seem manageable. And unless I can find that sense of comfort and ease that I sought from alcohol through this process, there's no way I'm going to stay here. And there's a relationship between God and alcohol. What it says in the promises, we suddenly realize that God could do for us what we could not do for ourselves. Didn't some of us suddenly realize that alcohol had done for us what we could not do for ourselves? And you can see that relationship between God and alcohol by substitution in the promises. You know, you get into the ghettos in this country where everything's been burned to the ground. There's always two things that stick out. Churches and liquor stores. You know why? Because they both give man hope. And if you're a newcomer, you know, when we wish you the gift of desperation, you know, that gift of hopelessness where everything that I call self-reliance had failed me, had to be burned to the ground for me to become willing to take actions here that I didn't believe in. You know, there's a letter from Bill Wilson to Carl Jung, and he talks about the relationship between spirits and spirituality, or God and alcohol. And for people like me, alcohol is an artificial means to a spiritual experience. These 12 simple steps are a practical means to a spiritual experience. You take the booze away from me, you don't give me something better, I'm a dead man. Because it was alcohol that gave me the courage to walk across that dance floor and ask that beautiful girl to dance. It was alcohol that gave me the guts to go after that big job. It was alcohol that gave me the courage to go on that audition. It was alcohol that gave me the wings to fly. And when I'm not drinking, 
I'm separate, different, and alone by nature. When I'm not drinking, I'm chasing you four exits past my, my exit on the highway. I'm jumping up and down on your hood in traffic. You know, when I'm not drinking, I'm counting your items in the checkout line. You got 11. See, you guys do that up here too. You know, I'm so separate, different, and alone when I'm not drinking my own mom's like, drink, son, you were nicer. Have a cigarette while you're at it. Another outside issue. You know, unless I can find that freedom that I sought from alcohol through this process and actually find it through the 12 steps, there's no way I'm going to stay here. You know, it's like we're on a train and the train goes to one place. The train goes to jails, institutions, and death. That's the only place it goes. Now, right now, we're at a station. But my experience shows me that without this process and the 12 steps, I will get back on that train again. There's a guy named Chuck C., and he said the real problem here isn't alcohol. He said the real problem is a conscious separation from God. And then he points to the 11th step where you see the solution, conscious contact with God. And the bridge from 2 to 11 for me was steps 4 through 9. You know, and I became willing to take those actions that I didn't believe in. Maybe what they should say in AA is, rarely have we seen a person fail that's done steps 4 through 9. Rarely have we ever seen anybody do 4 through 9. <laughs> what I do is the notorious AA waltz. 1, 2, 3, drink. 1, 2, 3, drink. And I'll turn my will and life over to anything but that which will solve my problem. That's why we always say, if you want to hide something from a newcomer, you know where to put it, right? Stick it in the, yeah, stick it in the, the literature. They'll never find it. There's only one thing alcoholics do in moderation. You know what it is? The steps. And that's a tragedy. You know, and I had to come to terms with what he meant by a conscious separation from God. And it was simple. I didn't want to pray to God. You know why? I didn't want God to find out where I was. And a lot of us are like that. I mean, we have a chapter in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, We Agnostics. Have you noticed we don't have a chapter, We Believers? And I slowly had to look at those Old ideas that were blocking me. That I had this belief system. I mean, you know, if you get in a closet and pray for a hot dog, you know what will happen, right? You'll die. <laughs> and I had a conditional relationship to this power all of my life, and I didn't know it. God can move mountains, but you better bring a shovel. Or where I live, we, you know... I had a Santa Claus God. Right? We have a parking meter God. If you get a parking space, God is good. If you don't, that's a visual. And I don't mean to be offensive, but, but I had a conditional relationship with this power. I tell my sponsees, don't pray for women. God's not a pimp. <laughs> I 
And what Alcoholics Anonymous and the 12 Steps eventually did for me was showed me a way to be rid of these old ideas about this power that were blocking me from a spiritual experience. And it was an evolutionary process. You know, Bobby Earl used to talk about um, the priest and the atheist. We have a story that the, the, we use the term in AA, the Eskimo. And that comes from a story of a priest and an atheist. And they're in a bar in Alaska. And the priest says to the atheist, how come you don't believe in God? And the atheist says, oh, I tried God once. And the priest says, well, what do you mean? And the atheist says, well, I was in a blizzard. I was walking around in the snow and I was lost and it was dark and I knew I was going to die. So I got on my knees and I said, God, if there's a God, help me. I'm going to die. And the priest looks him right in the eye and he says, well, you're sitting here. You must believe in God. And the atheist says, you don't understand. Right after I got off my knees, I bumped into this Eskimo and he showed me a way back into town. You know, and if you're new and you said that prayer, God help me, maybe this is it. <laughs> There's a poem in Notre Dame. It says, I sought my God, my God I could not see. I sought my soul, my soul I could not free. I sought my brother and I found all three. And we talk about nothing ensures immunity from drinking more than intensive work with others. And my sponsor sat me down after 28 trips through treatment and 17 years as a newcomer. And he said, if you're not willing to take people through the steps, you're going to die. And I hope that it's a matter of life and death. Because it's amazing how quick someone will do a four-step when they have a gun to their head. You know, like my friend said, it took him, you know, two years and a day to write a four-step. Two years to worry about it and a day to do it. <laughs> you know, that which will solve my problem. And, you know, it was the bridge for me from faith to trust. There's a huge difference between faith and trust. You know, it's like if there was a high wire, you know, across the, the room, you know, like it, like a high wire between two buildings and, you know, a guy came out pushing a wheelbarrow across the high wire. We don't look up at him and think, oh, he'll probably make it. That's faith. You know what trust is? You get in the wheelbarrow. <laughs> and that wheelbarrow for me was steps four through nine. That I became willing to take actions that I didn't believe in. You know, and Wilson talks about me being the actor, trying to be the director, forever trying to arrange the lights, the ballet, the scenery, and all the players. If only people would do as I wished. But what I never considered in that scenario is like a play, I had given God a role in my play. And when God didn't meet my finite human expectations, what I did is I slowly became separate from that power. And what Alcoholics Anonymous has done for me, like a lot of us, has shown me a way to be rid of those old ideas. You know, you tell a five-year-old kid, I want you to go in your room and straighten out your room. He doesn't want to do that. You tell that same kid, I want you to go in your room and I want you to throw out all your old stuff and we'll take you and buy you new stuff. How long would that take? 
At some of these we balked. And when I started to look at the steps and the process and inventory from the perspective as being rid of the things that were blocking me from spiritual freedom, everything changed. My motivation changed. When they asked Michelangelo, they said to Michelangelo, how did you make the statue of David? And Michelangelo said, I never made the statue of David. I just chipped away everything that wasn't David and there he was. And for me, the 12 steps showed me a way to be rid of those old ideas. You know, it's a step three has little lasting effect unless at once followed by a strenuous effort to face and be rid of the things that are blocking me. It doesn't say face and cope with. Face and endure forever. To be rid of. You know, those old ideas were killing me. See, alcoholism for me was the only prison where the key was inside. And I had looked for every imaginable remedy to solve that problem. You know, a friend of mine used to talk about the way that they train elephants, like in in Africa and different places. The way they train baby elephants is they, they chain these elephants to these huge trees. And when the elephant tries to get away, it comes to believe that it can't get away. It's chained to a tree. What happens when the elephants grow up is they grow up to be monsters. And all they do is they take a little wooden stake and a little rope and they tie it around the elephant's leg. And as soon as the elephant remembers the chain, they stay where they, they're, they're, they're staked. And I mean, there could be a fire in the jungle. It's a fact that, you know, you see elephants dead along the side of the road because of a belief system. You know, when we talk about I offer myself to thee to build with me and do with me as thou wilt, relieve me of the bondage of self. That bondage for me was those old ideas that had been blocking me all of my life. My esteem, don't you know who I think I am? My pride, don't you know who I pretend to be? My security, what I need? Ambition, what I want? And if anything harmed, threatened, or interfered with those old ideas, I immediately went to resentment. And you know what resentment is. I take poison and hope you die. <laughs> See, alcoholics like me are emotion over intellect. Normal people are intellect over emotion. And unless I can have an entire psychic change in that area, I can't be free. I'm separate, different, and alone by nature. You give me two or three drinks, I'm calling people from fifth grade saying, I love you. I go right into amends. And this process for me, like a lot of us, showed me a way to be rid of those old ideas. And rid of is synonymous with remove in step six and seven. So this guy comes up to his sponsor and he says, you know, I was in a restaurant last night and I paid with a 20 and the waitress gave me change for a 50 and I don't know what to do. So the sponsor says, you know, you should give the money back. The girl could lose her job. So he gives the money back. A couple weeks later, the sponsor and sponsee are having dinner, and the sponsor pays with a 50, and the waitress gives the sponsor change for a 100. Sponsor puts it right in his pocket. So they get outside the restaurant, and that's what the sponsee said. He couldn't believe it. I I saw that. She, She gave you too much money. Why didn't you give it back? Sponsor looked him right in the eye and said, it bothered you. 
The Al-Anons never laugh at that. <laughs> but the reality is, is what happened to me, like a lot of us, through the 12-step process, is I was slowly able to be rid of those old ideas. And I was slowly able to look at the things in myself that were objectionable. And when I admitted to God, to self, and to another human being, the nature of my wrongs, and I was able to see it, it started to become objectionable to me. You know, and they say it, if you don't change around here, your sobriety date will, right? But my experience shows me that I can't change. My experience on my, I'm working on my defects. It's like, I can't seem to work on them without God's help. You know, and just like I came to a surrender with alcohol in step one, I eventually had to come to another form of surrender. With gluttony, with greed, with pride, with envy, with sloth, with anger. You know, so I, I put down the drink and what do I do? I pick up the fork. Next thing you know, I can't see my feet. You know. And I'm in liposuction. You know, that's gluttony. Then I pick up the credit card. I put down the fork, I pick up the credit card. You know, I'm going to fix what I did with the fork with the credit card, right? You know, and then I'm in bankruptcy court on my knees in six and seven, saying, God, I can't live like that. Then I start acting out in the rooms. Can't go to that meeting again. Can't go to that meeting again. And it's like I can play musical poisons all day long in the first step and never really address the problem. What the big book says is when we straighten out spiritually, we straighten out mentally and physically. And, you know, I remember my sponsor said to me, he said, what do you want from Alcoholics Anonymous? And I, you know, I grew up in Malibu. I said, I don't want a yacht and a Learjet. I had an ego. And you know what he said to me? He said, if you work steps four through nine and you consistently live in 10, 11, and 12, what you'll get is a quiet mind and a loving heart. And I looked at him and I said, what do I want that for? <laughs> but you guys know what the opposite of a quiet mind is, right? It's a mind that won't shut up. It's a mind that's up at three in the morning telling you you're a loser. You're fat. You know that job you got? They're going to do the background check on you. It's telling you right now your girlfriend's with her ex while you're here at this event. <laughs> you better check your text messages. It's the mind that's up five minutes before me every day telling me you're a loser. You don't need to go to these meetings. And what's the opposite of a loving heart? It's a vindictive heart. It's a prejudiced heart. It's a resentful heart. And all of my life, I was crucified between two thieves, yesterday and tomorrow. And yesterday, I have guilt, shame, and remorse. And tomorrow, I have fear, anxiety, and worry. You know, and the reality of the inventory is resentment deals with my past, fear deals with my future, and conduct deals with the present. And our spirits are kind of like a body of water. When they're perfectly still, they best reflect the heavens. Now, I know how to get there with a bottle of liquor. But again, unless I can find that sense of comfort and ease that I sought from alcohol through this process, people like me won't stay here. And part of the reason I wasn't able to stay sober or get sober for 17 years is because I wasn't willing to give anything. 
And my sponsor said, you know, the reason the grass is greener, you know why the grass is greener over there, right? It's because they're watering it. And you know, in the real world out there, there's two kinds of people. There's givers and there's takers. 90% of the world's takers, 10% are givers. Now, you come into AA and you think it'd be different, right? Same ratio, 90% takers, 10% givers. If you don't believe it, wait till they ask for cleanup tonight. (laughs) My friend said it was like a sporting event. You got fans and you got players. And the players are the ones that are setting up the meetings and bringing the literature and setting up the chairs and making the coffee and on the committees. And then you've got the, the fans. They're the ones that are taking the coffee and taking the literature and taking the chairs. And he said AA was the most dangerous spectator sport in the world. And my experience shows me that it's the givers that are having all the fun. Ultimately, it's the givers that stay here. You know? And I don't know where that change happened in me that somehow I went from total and absolute selfishness to having a servant's heart in Alcoholics Anonymous. But I guess it was through some divine intervention that I can't put my finger on. But I became willing to give something back anytime I'm asked, you know. And there's this great, you know, being a newcomer for 17 years is kind of like being in purgatory, you know. And there's this great story about the banquet table. And this guy's in purgatory, and he's he's asked, you know, what do you want, heaven or hell? So he says, well, let me see, let me see hell first. And he goes into this room, and there's this huge banquet table. And around this table, you get about 40, 50 people, and they're sitting around this banquet table with every kind of food you can possibly imagine. And they're in these huge armchairs and they're strapped to these armchairs and they've got like this three foot long silverware, like duct tape to their hands so they can't feed themselves. And they're like stuck there for eternity. And you can see the terror on their faces. They're like starving to death. And he says, that's awful. Let me see heaven. And he goes into heaven and it's the same banquet table. It's exactly the same, the same set of the same big armchairs, the same people, They're strapped to these chairs. They've got this four-foot silverware duct taped to their hands. But he takes a double take and he can see they're happy. And they're nourished. And he can't figure it out at first. And then he realizes the difference between heaven and hell is that in heaven they're feeding each other. And when we talk about selfishness, self-centeredness, that is the root of our trouble. You know, it became a matter of life and death for me. And I hate to say it because I know that it'll piss a few people off, but my life's so good there should be background music. <laughs> and that's a product of staying in 10, 11, and 12, of actually doing the exercises and practicing these principles, like watching for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. You know, asking God to remove them, discussing them at once, turning to someone I can help, continuing to live in 11 and pray for God's will and being of service. And through that, what happened to me is I found a way to navigate around the drama. I found a way to pause when agitated. I found a way to match calamity with serenity. I found a way to stay in fit spiritual condition. And, you know, if someone did to me what I did to myself, I hate to say this, it's strong language, I would have killed them. 
If someone did to me what I did to others, I would have killed them. And when I came in these rooms, you think I wanted to pray? I thought God had been watching. Those three relationships with God, with self, and with others had been destroyed. Like a lot of alcoholics, I was bankrupt in those three areas. If you really look at the 12 steps by design, steps one through three recreate and develop a relationship with God. Steps four through seven recreate and develop a relationship with self. Steps eight and nine recreate and develop a relationship with others. Ten maintains my relationship with self. Eleven maintains my relationship with God. And twelve maintains my relationship with others. So for the first time in my life, I'm able to live in harmony in those three simple relationships. There was a great spiritual teacher and he was asked, what's the most important thing of all your teachings? And he said, love God with all thy heart and love thy neighbor as thyself. And you know, that scared me when I heard that. I mean, if you're new and God scares you out of these rooms, don't worry about it. Booze will scare you right back in. (laughs) So you're at a turning point. You know, that's why they say we beg of you to be fearless and thorough from the very start. You know, one of the oldest stories in Alcoholics Anonymous, probably been around since the 40s, is about this little kid. He's about five years old, and he's he wants to play with his dad, and he's trying to figure out a, you know, he wants to play with his dad, and the dad's like an accountant. He's really busy. So the dad's trying to figure out a way to get rid of this little kid, to keep him occupied. So what the dad does is he grabs a little map. You know National Geographic, they have those great maps of the world? He grabs this map of the world out of National Geographic and he, he rips the map up into like 50 pieces and he gives it to the little boy and he says, what I want you to do, son, is I want you to put this map of the world back together. Here's some tape. When you're done, we'll play. And he's thinking, it's going to take the kid an hour, right? Little kid comes back in three minutes. He's got the whole map of the world all put back together. And the dad says, that's impossible, son. How did you do that? And the little boy says, you know, Dad, on the back of the map of the world was a picture of a man. I just put the man back together and the whole world fell into place. And for me, like a lot of us, that was the spiritual technology of Alcoholics Anonymous. And my experience shows me that I want to put the map back together with 30 days sober. Get the girl, the house, the job, the car. And you know what? Every time I did that, I was back in a bracelet and detox. But by doing the 12 steps, one through three with God, four through seven with self, through inventory, eight and nine service with others, and then maintaining those simple relationships of 10, 11, and 12, like a lot of us, the whole world fell into place. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.